the way I like to think about it is when we narrow, that allows us to, you know, refine and get better in that particular narrow space. But it also causes us to cement both our skill and even our psychology and our identity around things. And prematurely cementing limits your past in the future where your best event might be something entirely different than what you started out as. Welcome to the Growth Equation Podcast. I'm Steve Magnus, joined by my good friend and colleague, Brad Stolberg. Brad, what's going on, my man? Not so much, Steve. It's great to be talking with you. Uh, feeling really good. Had a nice workout this morning. Freshly shaved my head. Got my big headphone on. Looked like Bro Jogan over here. Um, but we are going to record a podcast that is a little bit different today because we are talking about things that are backed by real science. Oh, man, real science, not birth science. And speaking of sticking with real science, not birth science, one of the reasons we do not have a sponsor of crazy supplements, stuff that seems like it might work but really doesn't, is pretty simple. Is We want to stay authentic to what we're saying and, and the advice we're giving you. So instead, we sponsor ourselves, which means through Patreon. So if you want to help support the podcast, head on over to patreon.com slash the growth equation and you get all sorts of good stuff like episodes of this podcast early. You get a monthly book club where we invite some of you know the world's best thinkers and authors in to discuss their work. You get a quarterly mastermind group. And then whenever a new book of Brad or mine comes out, you get a signed copy of that, too. So all sorts of goodies. Head on over to Patreon, check it out, and support the podcast and the newsletter and the rest of the work that we do. Love it. All right, so let's dive in. Today, we are going to talk about a fascinating study. It was an analysis of over 6,000 athletes, and it found distinct differences between those who made it to world-class levels versus those who started out really, really hot as young children and didn't progress as far. Now, we're going to focus on this study because the sample size is so large and it's one that we know well. But what's fascinating is that other research looking at Nobel laureates, so obviously not athletes, people that are in intellectual creative fields, have very similar paths to their greatness it's often not the child prodigy that rises to the top, but people with different attributes. Or it's the child prodigy, excuse me, it's what separates one child prodigy from another. So that's what we're going to try to figure out today. So four big topics that we're going to discuss. The first, generalization versus specialization. The second, time of starting the craft that one becomes great at. The third, hours of practice. The fourth, rate of progress. So Steve, let's dive in. All right, let's do this. 
Okay, so let's start with generalization versus specialization. And this, I, I don't think we can have this conversation or even dive into this study without mentioning our good friend Dave Epstein's book, Range. So if you want to deep dive into that, absolutely Dave's book is the, the go-to resource on this. But what this research study found, essentially, is that often in our kind of conceptualization of performance, especially in sport, we think that specialization is what matters. Is that if we're going to be a great track star, then we got to do track early. If we are going to be a football player, whatever star, then football is what we need to do. And we need to do that almost exclusively because the more time we spend doing that, the better we're going to kind of get. And what the research shows, in particular this study, but others, as Brad mentioned, is that those who made it to world class had more multi-sport than specialized practice. What does that mean? They were more likely in their early days to play soccer, football, basketball, instead of focusing on just one. And I think that's such an important um, part of this. And, and one of the reasons why is because the belief is uh, a couple different things. First is it gives us more breadth so that we, we know that when we create this kind of wider base of support, it allows us to almost exploit or utilize our talents and our specialty once we get there better. So from an athletic standpoint, you think about it in this way is if I'm sitting here playing multiple sports, then I'm developing my general athletic ability in multiple di directions, which then gives me, I'll call it more room and paths to grow from versus if I just start out and say, you know what, I'm really good at running. I'm going to learn how to run. Well, let's think about this in the running standpoint is if you only focused on running from the age of, I don't know, 8, 9, 10, what have you, is you, you, you don't develop the ability to move in multiple planes, for example. You're very good at running in a straight line. So from an athletic development standpoint, you can be hindered in terms of your base. And then also from a psychological standpoint, in terms of um, you're creating that breadth as well, you can be hindered because... What we know is that variety or lack of variety and novelty is tied to burnout. So repeating the same thing over and over and over and again. So if you're doing that from a very young age, you're almost setting yourself up for having to, to deal with that, that kind of lack of variety um, and novelty uh, during your crucial development years. So I'm really glad that you used the word exploit because this links to some research that I found really interesting and also kind of intuitive, which shows that the best way to peak at whatever it is that you're doing is to have a period of exploration first where you're trying different things and then to exploit the thing where your skills, curiosities, and interests align best with. And I think that this works twofold. And the research would support me here. The first is the multi-sport athlete, the kid that gets a liberal arts education. Be a generalist, try different things. And then that's exploration, right? And then exploit the thing that you're good at. 
once you've exploited the thing that you're good at, then within that domain, explore all kinds of different things. So try writing memoir, try writing fiction, try writing nonfiction, try writing narrative nonfiction. Then exploit the thing in that domain that you're really good at. So it's like a narrowing funnel that you want to happen over a long period of time. So it starts, explore really, really widely. In the example of sports, play all the freaking sports. Have your kid play all the sports they're interested in. Then maybe come later on in high school, in college, maybe not even until they reach the pros, right? There are stories of um, two-sport college athletes. Pick a single sport. You're going to be great at soccer. Then within soccer, explore different styles of your game before you hone in and really specialize. And over time, particularly as you age, be willing to shift that style. So we're constantly going through these patterns of explore and exploit and constantly getting more narrow um, until we peak. And I think that it's just fascinating to think about having that work on these two different levels, finding the thing and then finding your style or your niche within the thing. Yeah, the way I like to think about it is when we narrow, that allows us to you know, refine and get better in that particular narrow space. But it also causes us to cement both our skill and even our psychology and our identity around things. So if we narrow too early, what happens is we're just kind of fusing and cementing with the thing. And and this can kind of mani- manifest itself in a number of different avenues or a number of different areas, both in terms of your identity development, but also in terms of, as I said, that skill development in terms of, you know, for example, I'll use my sport in running. You define yourself as a miler and you say, I only run the mile instead of developing your both your speed on the shorter end and your endurance on the longer end by trying different things, maybe cross country, running some 400s, 4x4s, whatever have you. And prematurely cementing limits your past in the future where your might your best event might be, you know, something entirely different than um, what you started out as. So let's jump into a related topic, which is individuals that end up being truly great at what they do start that activity later in life. So again, this is on average, of course, there's a bell curve and there are exceptions, but on average, the kid that starts playing baseball at eight or nine is going to be better than the kid that starts playing baseball at five or six. The kid that gets into art at 12 and starts sculpting at 12 is going to be better than the kid that went to pottery classes twice a week starting at age seven. Um, Are there domain-specific differences? Yes. I think particularly if it's something that's multilingual, there's all kinds of research that shows that there starting early has an enormous advantage. But outside of that, it doesn't. And if anything, it's a disadvantage. So Steve, what's going on here? Yeah, so I think it's important here to talk about the exceptions first which is, you mentioned one with linguistics. You also see this, and Dave Epstein outlines this wonderfully in his book, Range, is what I'll call narrow skills. So something like like chess, right? Where essentially you're accumulating this narrow skill that is, um, you know, possibilities of movement on a chessboard. So you need a very long accumulated time to, to uh, accumulate that ability. So in narrow skills, sometimes starting early can be beneficial. But whether we're talking about in sport or life, most of our skills aren't kind of that refined, that narrowed. Most of them require uh, a multitude of um, 
both physical and mental and psychological abilities that come in to contribute to that skill. So with that caveat out of the way, I think, again, if you look at, there's a couple of different things going on here. First, when we, the earlier we start something, the more, as I mentioned earlier, we kind of cement around that thing. And if you look at at what happens with prodigies, for example, who cement around a sport or a musical style or instrument or whatever have you early on, is when we cement early, our motivation actually shifts. So we generally get interested or start things because they're interesting to us, because they're exciting, because like there's some internal driver propelling and pushing us towards that thing. And what the research tends to show is early cementation or early practicing of that main thing that we're really freaking good at shifts us to more of a success and outcome oriented like motivational style. We just get pulled that way because it's hard to resist that that kind of validation as maybe a seven, eight, nine, ten year old where you become really good at something and you're like, oh, everybody knows me for this. So you naturally get pulled towards that which can help in the short term. But again, research shows over the long term that that extrinsic motivation tends to fade and makes us and leads us towards, again, kind of apathy and maybe burning out versus cultivating that intrinsic motivation, which allows us to sustain it over the long haul. Now, if we start our main sport later, what generally happens is we've explored a whole heck of a lot and tried a bunch of different things, and tried a bunch of different roles, put on a bunch of different hats. So by the time we get to our thing that is likely to become our sport or job or pursuit, like we see it more clearly on, oh, this is something that actually matters to me. This is something that, you know, really ticks those intrinsic internal motivational boxes. So we're more likely to have a sustainable motivational pattern over the long haul with the thing. I think that relates to the third point as well, which is um, that the individuals that ended up outperforming their peers actually had less practice too early on. And um, one big part of this is this notion of identity foreclosure which basically says that when you are developing a sense of self, the more that you do something, the more of it that becomes core to your sense of self. So if you're spending all your time practicing chess, tennis, golf, music, then your identity is going to become as chess player, musician, tennis player, golfer, so on and so forth. And the trap there is that once, not once, when you hit a rough patch, because everyone does, if you don't have other aspects of your identity, it's going to feel like a complete failure of yourself. And going through that between the ages of 10 and 18 is really hard. Your prefrontal cortex hasn't formed. You are looking for your sense of self and validation in the world. And if you spend so much time doing this one thing and that becomes the driving force of your identity, then when you struggle at that one thing, you're going to struggle globally in your life. When you struggle globally in your life, you're more susceptible to burnout. So For the parent that wants their eight-year-old to just be the best eight-year-old and put in all this practice, and maybe they read, you know, the 10,000-hour rule about practice, and they're starting to count the hours, that kid's going to progress really, really well. Eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, 13, they might be the art champion of the middle school, but then they get to the state competition, and they have a bad week. 
or the judges don't like their art and they don't win. And then suddenly you have a 14-year-old that is full of self-doubt, depression, anxiety, and restlessness. That's not good for peak performance. It's not good for health. It's not good for well-being. So is there anything else going on here, Steve, or is the main thing really around this identity foreclosure that comes when you spend so much time when you're young on, on a single pursuit? I, I think that's a large part of it. And I think the one other um, area that I'd say is important on here is often if your bulk of your practice comes later in life, it's more likely that you are choosing that and actively saying like, oh, I want to practice this. If the bulk, if you're accumulating lots of practice early, often it comes from some sort of external source, right? Mom, dad, coach, whoever, like propelling you to practice, practice, practice. Because, you know, again, there are exceptions, but kids like to play and they get bored of things and they like to do other things. So like, you're, it's going to be very, you know, it's it's the rare exception for the kid who actively likes and wants to sit down for whatever five six hours a day and focus solely on one thing um so i think that is another big part of that that question is where not only do those who make it to world class generally accumulate less practice early on but it's where is that practice driver coming from is it from the kid himself or is it from the parent coach or adult that is either you know, pushing or sometimes not even pushing, but showing through their actions and behaviors that, hey, the only time I pay attention to you, son or daughter, is when you're at football practice or at the soccer game. And that's the only source of validation I'm giving to you. So it almost feels like, um, again, it might not be intentional, but it's that external kind of message that you're putting on your child to say, hey, this is, you need to do this thing more because this is where I value you at. Yeah, this is good to keep in mind, Steve. I probably should have opened with this, but um, it's a big, big weekend coming up, which is the kickoff of the Asheville Buncombe Youth Soccer Association. And yours truly is the head coach for the West Asheville Wolves. There, there it is. So, at, you know, if we have any listeners who are in this this youth soccer league, I want you to watch Brad's coaching style and see if he he loses it and freaks out on the ref uh, when his when his kid doesn't get the get the right call. <laughs> I don't think so, man. But I'm so glad that we're called the Wolves because these are five year olds and we're going to do one, two, three, and that's going to be the most exciting part of practice. And as long as that's the case, then I'm doing my job. All right, back to our list of four things. The fourth, which is uh, intimately related to the first three, is world-class performers initially progress slower than their peers that don't make it to as high of a level. And I think that part of this is a result of the first three things, right? It's if you're not doing specialized practice, if you're not practicing a ton, if you start your sport later, or you start your pursuit later, uh, your, your progress is just going to be slower. I think that there's another benefit, though, which is that if you just go straight up when you're young, because you're the eight-year-old that's doing so much more in X pursuit than the other kids then you don't learn how to deal with failure in a really important developmental part of your life. 
Uh, I'm already seeing it now with my, my, my not even five-year-old son. Like there's, it's just freaking programmed. Did I win or did I lose? Getting so frustrated when a Lego breaks that he's been trying to build or when he can't do it, that's even worse than when it breaks. And these are all failures. And it's so important to learn to deal with failure because we know that the path to excellence is really rocky. It's full of highs and lows and ebbs and flows. And if a young kid doesn't get to experience those failures, those shortcomings during that critical time period, then when they do experience them later on, it blows them up. And not just their identity, but their whole emotional self, right? This is the kid at the uh, tennis circuit that chucks the racket into the net at age 13 because they, they, they lose the national championship or whatever it is. Um, so this is both an outcome of the first three things, but it's also then an input to what separates the best from the almost best uh, because you learn to cope with failure. And then also parents, I think just like, bad, I shouldn't say bad, misinformed parents start getting really upset when a kid that's been making great progress stops making progress, particularly if those parents weren't ever elite at anything, because they too expect it should just always be up and to the right. And they don't understand that plateaus are common as are dips. I mean, when you really get to the elite level of anything, you actually are constantly dipping and then the goal is to come back a little bit higher than where you started. Like this is the whole cycle of stress plus rest equals growth or compensation, super compensation growth, whatever you want to call it, right? You do something that's really hard. It wears you down. You get a little bit worse. You take time, you rest, recover, reflect, you let that work set in and then you're better. Um, so anyone that's going straight up into the right at any age probably isn't pushing themselves hard enough, A, and then B, eventually, if you do something for long enough, you're going to fail. Um, so progressing really fast at first, well, it's neat to be the all-star six to 13 year old and whatever it is that you're doing, it can get in the way between 13 and 70. Yeah, this, you know, this is validated by some wonderful research by Collins and McNamara. Um, I remember the study, I think it was called the Rocky road to the top, why talent needs trauma which essentially found exactly what you said, Brad, there is that the ones who make it have to go through some sort of struggle when they're young. And trauma in this sense doesn't off, it doesn't have to mean, you know, quote unquote, psychological trauma. It could be just learning how to fail and lose or deal with an injury or what have you. Um, it, it, and what we know is that early on, when we learn how to fail or get through a setback or what have you, that lesson sticks around with us and is easier to ingrain and deal with because, you know, if we fail as an eight-year-old, it's not like the consequences are that high. If our first approach to failure is when we're 18, 19, 20, and we've committed to this thing, and that's the first time we experience it, it, it does become an, an attack on our ego, our attack on our sense of self, and we treat it as a threat, which means we don't handle it very well. So again, I think this kind of sums up almost or, or ties in all four of these things is that if your child's not progressing quickly early on, don't freak out. Like that could be a very good thing. And it also gives you these teachable moments where it's like, you know, here's how you learn how to lose. Here's how you ha learn how to fail and get back at it. Here's why 
you know, winning and losing isn't the ultimate outcome or the thing that actually matters in all of this. So it really kind of brings it all together. And one thing I wanted to mention before we wrap this up is whenever we have these discussions, and I think it's really important, we've talked about caveats, caveats, but I always have parents or coaches or athletes say, but, but Steve, what about Tiger Woods or Serena Williams or name your prodigy that, that makes it? And I think it's very important here to notice or note that the study here was on 6,000 athletes, but we have tens of thousands of elite athletes or world-class athletes at any point in time across sports in the world. We're going to have outliers and exceptions in both directions. And I think we just make a mistake when we say, oh, look how you know Serena Williams or Tiger Woods did it and said, this applies to everybody when the research says on average that is the exception not the rule and i think you know maybe to back this up and validate is anytime you think of the tiger woods serena williams i want you to go through the age group records uh for a sport track and field is very simple and i want you to look at the fastest ever you know 12 year old and then see if you know who that is or look them up in more often than not, that 12-year-old phenom doesn't become the even college star, let alone the Olympic star. Now, there are one or two exceptions, right? There are exceptions to everything. But on average, they don't. And the thing that we don't often see are the stories of the quote-unquote phenoms or prodigies who don't become Tiger Woods, who don't become Serena Williams and have to deal with, again, being the superstar at 12, or 13, who then just gets overtaken and has has spent their last five, six, seven years of their life, whatever have you, cultivating this identity around the sport, and then don't have that breadth that we talked about that allows them to maybe pivot and finding, find something else that they're passionate about. On that note, uh, let's close with a quote. For the first two years of high school, he considered the possibility of playing football in college. He had an unforgettable high school debut, and he became the star of his team, catching 42 passes for 752 yards and 11 touchdowns. During his sophomore year, he was All-State. Who am I talking about? Phenomenal. At the time, probably the best tight end in the nation in high school football. I have no idea. LeBron James. So there you go. I mean, that's the counter, right? Yeah. Yeah. There you go. And you watch LeBron James play basketball. And what do people say? They say he's like a football player out there and he's unstoppable. Well, he played football. (laughs) Um, So I think that for every Serena Williams or Tiger Woods, you've got a LeBron James. And for every Serena Williams and Tiger Woods, you got a hundred eggs that cracked uh, when they were thrown against the wall for their entire lives. So there's a lot of selection bias that, that happens with these big stories. So, all right, let's do what I always do at the end of these podcasts. Let's quickly recap the key points, which is that there are a couple of attributes that separate those that truly achieve their potential and reach the top versus those that come up short of their potential. And this is true all the way up to the level of world class. And it's true in different domains from the arts to the sciences to sport. The first, those that make it, they have more multi-activity participation early on. They don't just do the single thing. They do lots of things. 
The second, they start their main thing later. The third, they actually accumulate less practice. This is so paradoxical, but what it does is it prevents one's identity from becoming completely tied to their pursuit at such a young age where when they experience failure, their world blows up. And then the fourth thing is they initially progress slower than those who ultimately progress faster when they're young, but end up not reaching the top. And why is this? Because experiencing failure is super important. So this is the Growth Equation Podcast. We're your hosts, Brad Stahlberg and Steve Magnus. If you like the show, check out our books. You will absolutely love them. We're confident of that. Our two most recent are Do Hard Things by Steve and The Practice of Groundedness by yours truly. They're meant to be read together. They go deep on all the topics that we talk about in the show. And you're listening to the show. If you prefer listening to the books, they're both available on Audible, on Libro, and anywhere else you get your books. So check those out. Continue to go deep on the pursuit of excellence. And we'll catch you next week. Bye.